<clears throat> so we're working through um, this letter and the section that we're looking at uh, this afternoon is chapter 4, verse 7 to 11, so a relatively small section. It's the second section of the uh, bigger section that we started uh, last week. In a sense, this section also becomes a little bit of a turning point, and there's a moment here where we see, we see one of the, uh, probably one of the most used phrases um, in all sorts of ways representing uh, the church. Uh, verse 7 says, the end of all things is near. Uh, you can almost imagine it, can't you? The kind of sandwich board, stereotypical, walking through the middle of the busy streets with a sandwich board on, the end is nigh, on the front and the back, and it kind of is the, the kind of caricature of a portrayal of, uh, to this world of what uh, a kind of disconnected Christianity is all about. Um, let's think about that for a few minutes. Uh, I, I, I found it really interesting the number of times when the church itself has said the end is near. And uh, just in our past recent modern history, not even thinking about the past, well, I'll give you one example, way back when, when uh, Rome was taken over, when it was finally defeated, Augustine wrote his, his book, The City of God, because what Christians were saying at that time, because Rome has been overthrown, it's the end, the, the end is near, it's got to be, the whole of the world is kind of about to implode and Jesus is about to return, the end is near and Augustine wrote the city of God as a, a moment for Christians to reflect, to think again. It's been said about World War I, it's been said about World War II, it's been said about CND, uh, the kind of post-World uh, War II uh, nuclear armament uh, and the, the uh, CND symbol, which we all are probably familiar with and uh, the kind of apocalyptic potential that was uh, just about to hit us. Uh, it's been said when barcodes were invented. Uh, really? It's been said when barcodes were invented and people felt as though Barcodes were going to be the very way in which all of us were going to be classified and therefore the end is near and we'll end up with barcodes tattooed on all of us and, and we'd be read electronically. I guess things have moved on from barcodes and we're now thinking the end is nigh because we can put a microchip under our skin and we can be scanned and all the rest of it. It's been said about the horrific tsunami. It's been said about the Twin Towers. It was said in 2012 that the, the end is nigh because of Mayan prophecies thousands of years ago. If you want to really see where it's culturally connected, uh, there's uh, an episode of The Simpsons. Homer Simpson goes to prep school where Homer becomes absolutely convinced that the end is nigh. Uh, that's really touching on where we are, isn't it? I thought, I wonder what, I wonder what kind of music has connected with the end is nigh. So I did a bit of a search on music that has had uh, apocalyptic or end of the world kind of comments about it and you're not surprised to find that there's a whole, I could either go kind of heavy metal and turn up with a Black Sabbath kind of Metallica, uh, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden kind of look and that would absolutely fit in with a kind of the end is nigh or I could go super goth 
Slayer Nine Inch Nails and all of that kind of stuff. And I would be right in there with the idea of the, the end is nigh. And then I kind of hopefully saw that maybe one of the songs that's on my iPod, well, it's not an iPod, before, before anyone accuses me of having an iPod, um, uh, Radioactive, Imagine Dragons is all about that kind of apop- apocalyptic end. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating, the idea of the end is nigh. There's a little bit of a hint. There's a little bit of connection that Peter is making here already to something that he's previously said in chapter 3, verse 20. There was another moment where it could be said the end is nigh. It was in the days of Noah. Isn't that interesting? In the days of Noah, he's already used that as a way for the believers at that moment in time to to consider their particular location in history and to reassess their attitude to the world that they live in. He's brought up that, he's raised that, and then he throws in another, the end is nigh, statement, or the end uh, is near. The end of all things is near. So before we jump straight onto the bandwagon of the end is nigh kind of thing, I want to firstly, for us to ask the question, which end is the end that Peter is talking about? Which end is the end that Peter is talking about? Secondly, when we ask that question, therefore how should we respond to the end is near? Uh, And we're going to see a number of ways in which we should respond. So the first question is, the end is near. The end is near of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Peter is located in a moment of history. He's located at a time which was absolutely unique for the Christian church. There was never a time when the Christian church was in its infancy and growing status as it, is, as it was at that moment in time. That's never been the case. Ever since, the church has been growing and growing, and there's been locations around the world uh, where it's been starting, and there's been kind of reaching into uh, virgin territory, absolutely. But there's never been a moment in time which was like that time. But that time was marked absolutely with the moment where there was severe opposition to the church. So is the end that Peter is talking about the collapse of the Nero Empire? There were other emperors that followed on. But it was Nero who was, if you like, the prototype of the unfurling of opposition to the church. This is probably written... AD 64 to AD 66, Nero's empire collapsed in AD 68. Is he talking about that? There was another critical moment in the development of God's engagement with the world, which was in AD 70, a few years later, just literally a few years later from when Peter wrote this letter. And he's writing to a group of Christians who have become believers in Jesus from a Jewish heritage. What happened in AD 70? The temple was destroyed. And the temple has never, 
yet, to this moment in time, although there have been many efforts, the temple has never, and the whole of the sacrificial system, has never yet been re-established. Is Peter saying to those believers, he's preparing them maybe for something which is perhaps disconnected from where we immediately think. He might be saying to them, the end is near of everything which has been the foundation, the platform on which you have built your relationship with God to date. The whole world is about to change dramatically. There has been thousands of years of the practice of sacrifice at the temple or through the tabernacle. All of that has been established for so many uh, years, tabernacle, then the first temple, destruction of the temple, building of the second temple, all of that period of time where there has been a re-establishment of that system. And, and Peter is saying it's about to go. It's about to end, maybe. Maybe. He might be talking about the fact that his perspective on the end of the world is that we are now in that time which is the end. What is, in world terms, the time which is the end? The time which sits between Jesus' first coming to this world and Jesus' second coming to this world. They will both occur in physical terms and they will be dramatically different in recognition. First one, Jesus, somebody has said, quietly the Savior of the world slips into the world birth of Jesus. The return of Jesus is going to be a dramatic, world-shaking, unquestionable return of the King. <laughs> is that the end that he's talking about? Is he talking about you and me? Um, those of us who are able to maybe look back on our family tree to some extent. One of the things that, that really kind of focuses our minds on is, is how short life is. How short life is. It's so brief. The end is near. The end is really near. For every one of us here this afternoon, in relative terms, the end really, really is near. All of those suggestions are precisely that. They are suggestions as to what Peter might have had in his mind as he uses this phrase. One of the things that we can end up bent out of shape with is when we take a little verse like this and we just pack all sorts of additional ideas and thoughts and speculation into it so that we focus on that rather than focusing on the outcome of that which he calls us to think about. Any one of those might be the case, but here's a living reality which is applicable for every one of us. We are every one of us, whether we are living in Peter's day or whether we are living in today's times, we are living in the end days. We are living in the days before, imminently before Jesus returns. We are. That's one absolute Secondly, we are, all of us, imminently living before the end of our lives. That is the truth as well. We are all, therefore, valid recipients 
of the statement, the end is near, (laughs) aren't we? So let's not kind of bounce around speculating what it might mean. Let's look at what it says, which is the end is near. Therefore, what should we do? We should be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Some of us are old enough to remember the, um, the kind of fear and terror of the prospect of the four-minute warning. Do you remember that some years ago? Some of you are looking and saying, what's that all about? Round about 1970s, there was the kind of the four-minute warning. And um, it was the prospect of a nuclear attack from, um, probably from the USSR was the most uh, likely. uh, The ones that we thought would press the red button. And there was also, what would you do in the last four minutes? You know, the, the, the bomb is flying over this intercontinental ballistic missile, whatever it was called, it's on its way towards you. You've got four minutes. What are you going to do? And, and there was loads of films, loads of stories were based on that idea. Some people would do all sorts of crazy things. They've got four minutes to live. Some people suggested the thing that you want to do at that four minutes is paint yourself white. You'll be all right if you paint yourself white and it will reflect the radiation and people would think about carrying, genuinely, there were some nutcases who walked around with a paint pot thinking that if I paint myself white in four minutes, I'm going to be all right. They obviously hadn't seen the films of the, um, of the atom bomb actually going off and thinking, actually, a bit of white painting and they do much in that case. What do you do when you realize that, that the end is imminent? That's the question that Peter is asking. And it's a really, really valid question. What are you and I going to do when we realize the fragility of life and the prospect of the end and the reality that we will come face to face with our maker? His response is this. When you realize that that is the reality, stay sober. Be alert and stay connected. It's essentially what he's saying. Live a car- if you have any, of, any of you have seen The Dog Whisperer, one of the phrases that Caesar Milan uses about crazy, out-of-control dogs, he says he want, every dog needs to live in a calm, submissive state because that's where they'll be happy. And I just thought, you know what? That's remarkably like us. When we know that our master is in control, no matter what is going on around us, we need to live in a calm, submissive state. We need to live in a frame of mind which is connected. Look at what he says. When you realize that the end is near, be alert, be sober of mind, be calm in other words, and be connected in prayer. See that? Be connected. Don't don't disconnect. Don't dash around. Now, this was incredibly relevant. Because for some of them, the end is near. Could have been potentially the door being broken into, knocked down, loved ones being taken, and the reality of the Nero 
executions and persecutions becoming a living, personal reality. When that is the prospect, stay connected to the one who loves you. Stay connected to the one who is sovereign and who is in control. I think that that makes sense of our lives today, doesn't it? We're not facing the door being broken down. But for many of us, we might be facing that continuous prospect of the end is very near. As time goes on, we realize how close that might be. Stay calm. Stay connected. Be connected to God in prayer is what Peter is saying. He's saying it's not all about the here and now. If the end is all about this tangible world, he's saying remember that there is an eternal dimension and your Savior is there. He lives. Be connected to Him. Okay, that's great. How, therefore, do we live? In the context of if we were all really aware of the end being near, the fragility, how do we conduct our, our day-to-day lives? In a sense, he says, and we're going to look at it in three ways, well, four ways, three sections, and we're going to break the last one down into two. He essentially says, continue to live a normal life. But normal looks like this. Continue to live, continue to give, and continue to act in these ways. So he says, firstly, continue to love. Above all, this is how to do. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. So once we've come to terms with the fact that We're pretty close. How do we relate to each other? We love each other. It's the first thing that he says. People have said, haven't they, that love is blind. Uh, It's a kind of phrase that can be used in a really kind of kind-hearted, loving sort of way. Or it can be said in a sort of (laughs) love must be blind kind of way. In terms of... he loves her or she loves him, then love must be blind kind of thing. Because can you really love that person? There is a sense in which love is blind, but there is another sense, isn't there, in which that has an element of profound biblical truth to it when we look at the relationship that God has with us. Love is blind. In one sense. It's not stupid. Love is not stupid. God's love towards us is not stupid. It's not love is ignorant. It's not saying that I'm ignorant of all. I know the truth, God says. I know the truth. But I've dealt with the truth. I've dealt with the reality of your rebellion. And I am now blind to that because of Jesus. Isn't that an amazing truth? Love is blind 
when it comes to God towards us. He's saying, I love you so much that my love for you can be described as far as the east is from the west. That infinite distance. It's just, you can't imagine the distance. I am blind to it. Your sins are cast into the sea and have sunk to the very bottom of the sea. In Hebrew terms, that meant a huge amount. The the sea was this uncontrollable mass of something, a place of fear. And God says, I've cast your sins to the very bottom of that place, which is unachievable, unattainable. It's that far away. My love for you is blind, in a sense, God is saying. And He's saying to us, my love for you is blind. Therefore, your love for each other should express the same qualities. It covers over a multitude of sins. That is a phrase that appears in a number of places in the New Testament. It is a profound statement. It is something which without the work of God, which without the work of grace in our lives, we are simply unable to achieve, I think. We can't really come to terms with this until God really works in our hearts and in our attitudes so that we love in the conscious knowledge of offense and yet with a love which is so grand, so dramatic, so pervasive that it is blind to those things which have offended us in the past. That is dramatic, isn't it? And God is saying, for you to function effectively as believers in a a world of chaos, you live like this. This is how you live. It's the kind of attitude, it's the kind of mindset which is so radical, so dramatic, that when people turn up and they look at the attitudes of the way Christians live towards each other, it should be so different that it strikes home with a supernatural power. And all of us sit back, and if we are truly honest before God against those demands, every one of us would sit back and say, I have failed. I have failed. I don't love like that. I don't love with an attitude which is so incredibly powerful. So blanketing my attitudes towards those offenses that I no longer see them. And yet that is what God is calling us to do. No matter what your sport, or no matter what your enthusiasm, I won't limit it to sport. might be some kind of musical enthusiasm or practical... I don't know, painting or something. There is always going to be somebody who is so, so, so much better than you. You might be into sprinting. uh, And you'll never be as fast as the world's fastest sprinters. But that doesn't stop you pursuing that goal. There is only one human being, the incarnate God, who has ever succeeded in fulfilling this demand of loving in this way. 
But the fact that he is the only one who has succeeded does not stop us pursuing the objective of loving like that. It doesn't stop us from seeking that kind of love towards each other. It doesn't stop us from exercising that kind of love towards each other. It is what we need to be doing. This is how you are to live. Love like this. Secondly, he says, give like this. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think it's really interesting. Firstly, just stop, and stop for a minute and think about what kind of context uh, Peter's writing to. He's writing to a church context which doesn't meet like this, probably, in a public space in this way. It meets in people's homes. Uh, it meets... The church gathers in different people's homes, probably. There was probably many churches that were represented by the readers of this letter. We've already seen it at the beginning. They probably met in a number of different homes within each local area. Perhaps some prominent homes which had more space. They might have met there every week. Actually, the words that Peter uses uh, without grumbling is the kind of words spoken under our breath. You know those kind of words which we, we only say as we're walking out of the room or when we get to the kind of place where we know that the people who we're spending time with uh, definitely can't hear this or the kind of words that we only say to our nearest and dearest. You know those kind of grumbling words of, are they ever going to go? Are they ever going to let go and give me some emotional space? Give me some time space? And Peter is saying, now listen, the way that you are to act, the way that you are to give, the way that you are to offer hospitality is unreserved because that's what Jesus has done for you. That's what Jesus has given to you. Unreserved, unrestrained hospitality to the worst of guests. That's what we are. That's what you and I are in the relationship with the living in the Father's house as we effectively do in our spiritual lives. We are the worst of guests. We're the kind of grumblers. We're the kind of people who put our feet up on the chairs without taking our shoes off. We're the kind of people who moan about the color of the tea that we've been served. We're the kind of people who, who just, just moan and groan and that's our attitude. That's how we live. That is how our spiritual lives are lived out in the house of God. I'm not talking about in the church. I'm talking about living in the presence of God day by day. We are the worst of guests. And yet God offers us and continues to give us total hospitality, total giving, when all that we do is sap. And now he's saying to you and to me, you give like that. You express love in that way. You give hospitality in that way. I think it's amazing the way the notions of hospitality change over time. And there's a real tendency for wherever our Wherever our social location is, 
that we define this verse by a particular model of hospitality. And therefore, hospitality means that we all do X, because that's what hospitality is in our particular social context. So maybe some of us have been used to (coughs) a situation where homes are opened up and people just drop in and stay as long as they want. That's hospitality. And if we're not giving hospitality in that way, then we're not fulfilling this verse. Let's get underneath it and let's see what what Peter is actually saying. He's actually saying, you give when it costs. So what's hospitality for us today? We have all sorts of ways in which we can be hospitable. But I think the way that most costs is time and emotion. I want to ask you, as I ask myself, are we hospitable with our time and emotion? Do we give in a way which is not not questioning, not keeping a measure on everything that we've given, not constantly saying, oh, you know, all they do is drain me. Do we give in that way? Are we hospitable with that which we can freely give? Again, the same applies, doesn't it? Whoever does that, none of us. Not properly. Jesus has. And he's become the model for us to pursue a life of hospitality. I think hospitality, I genuinely believe, hospitality changes over time. But those changes are often the excuse for us not to give. We say, it's not like that anymore. Therefore, I don't have to be hospitable. And we should hear the big, "Uh uh-uh, Actually, we need to redefine what being hospitable really means. It's giving when it costs. It's being generous when we feel as though our our resources are at the limit. I think that that can only operate, function correctly and helpfully in, in a church context, can't it? You know, if one person, if one person is hospitable in a, in a gathering like this, and everybody goes to that one person, they're going to sink. They're going to sink. They're just going to... They haven't got the, re, the emotional resource and bound, bandwidth. That's why it needs a body of people. That's why it needs different people with different capabilities, different gifts, different equipping, which is precisely where we come on to now. Peter says that you've got to love, you've got to give... And then you've got to use your gifts. And gifts are broken down really into two two ways of giving. But firstly, we open up with the idea of giving. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. What What you have is not a personally created capability and skill set. What I have, what we have, is not a personally 
crafted and developed skill set. Skill set. Everything that we have is a gift from God. It is given to us. In other words, the ability to do X. Somebody's got that. Maybe somebody is a few people. There are people. There are many people and we're thankful for them who has this ability to just be able to listen, to spend time with people, to be able to engage and to empathize. And and many people would look on that and and in the kind of wider context of social, the social perspective on that ability, we would look at that and we would say, that person has got such a, such a skill and they've developed it, they've got a natural ability, but boy, they've put some effort into it and they've used, and that's just fantastic. And then God says, no, just, you just remember that that's given to you by me. You remember that it's given to you by me. And look at the way that is described in this verse, it is given to you so that you might steward it. In other words, so that you might use it wisely because it is God's grace. See those words, see the way they function. What you are able to do is given to you so that you can use it widely because that that you can do is God's grace to all of us. It's what God is doing for us. It's what God serves us with. God doesn't kind of sit above and zap every one of us with blessing individually. The blessing that we receive is worked out by that which He gives the body of His church so that we can function by serving God's grace to each other. You know those kind of tear and share evenings where everybody brings a bit of food and you kind of tear and share and everybody gets a bit of the food that's brought along. That is exactly what we see in terms of the gifts that are given. They are given to us and we bring them so that they might be distributed amongst us all. That's how gifts are to work. Our gifts, what we can bring, are there to serve everybody. Peter writes this to churches and he doesn't, de- he doesn't demark, he doesn't qualify who you are to serve them with. He doesn't say, you know when you've got that gift, you're, you, you use that in service to all of your friends. He says you bring it and you serve the church. You serve everybody with that which you have. Now, of course, by by very function, that means that some people are going to be serving some people and other people are going to be serving other people. But he's saying we must never hear, oh, I'm not serving that person. There should be a liberal giving of our gifts to all. Not restricted by whether we get on with that person because after all we should love them in a way which has blanketed the sin which might offend us which means that we would not liberally give of the gift. 
See the way that it's all interconnects and works together to say if we get our attitude right, then we can then be liberal with the gifts that we have been given. The gifts that we have been given are to be liberally used to all. And then he breaks those down into two, two distinct groups. Verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. That, that now again, this verse is debated as to what Peter is meaning. It, I, certainly what he's talking about, he's talking about the function of speaking in the church, the function of, probably the function of teaching, but what he's actually saying is how it works is debated. On the one hand, there is a sense in which what Peter is opening up is the idea of the speaking prophetically, the very words speaking the very words of God into the church. Once again, the gifts function, God's grace coming down and being channeled through being given to through other individuals. And therefore, there is a sense in which the words that are spoken are God's grace to the church. But here's the thing. Are, are they, when I, when I speak or when, when anybody else speaks in a kind of preaching, teaching capacity in the church, do they speak the, the authoritative words of God whenever they speak? Of course I am a human being full of failure and, uh, and possibilities of misinterpretation and wrong thinking and overemphasis and underemphasis and all of those things. And therefore, there are two ways in which this re- reflects. The first is an attitude by which we think and how we perceive what we are hearing. So there is a real danger that we can sit above what is being declared, and therefore we can sit above it and kind of dissect it, and we're to be warned against that, and we're to say, you just remember that when we're hearing God's Word spoken, you need to remember that the Holy Spirit is working through this, so God is speaking to us. There's going to be bits which are messed up, there's going to be bits which are wrong, but God is speaking. So listen. That's for the hearers. For those who are speaking, there is this enormous pillar of stone which is sat on our shoulders as a challenge of responsibility and burden. In other words, you remember, whenever you are speaking, your humble attitude should be you are speaking the words of God. That's how serious it is. This is no light thing. When we meet in life groups and when somebody is leading that life group, when we're meeting in any other function, when we're meeting in other churches where the Bible is being preached, do you just remember that if you are speaking, the responsibility that that brings is enormous. It's a privilege, but it's enormous. So we approach it with careful consideration, wisdom, prayerful humility. 
So that's the speaking. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I've done this. I've given this. I've worked hard to do this. And I've I've served the church with this gift of activity. And I sit back at the end of the day and I say, I did a good job there. And we've lost this verse. Because it was only ever God who gave you the strength to do it. It was only God who gave you the inclination to do it. It was only God who gave you the ability to do it. It was only God who gave you the time and the resource to do it. And therefore, we sit back and we say, everything that has been done is to the glory of God. Because we have a natural human tendency, which is to draw some of that glory to us. And so whether we are serving with word or whether we are serving in any other function, we have a danger of saying, look what I've done. And this little section says, when the church is functioning at its very best, every one of us are serving by saying, look at what God is doing. And every one of us in every activity are looking and seeing it is God who has given us the opportunity for this to be served. And whenever anybody says, you know, thanks very much for what you've done, you say, praise God, because it's what he's done. That is what a really functioning church looks like when the end is near. It's pretty normal, isn't it? And yet it's pretty supernatural. It's both normal and impossible. (laughs) And that is how we're to live. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.